Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Scrap Podcast, where we talk with a range of people on a range of topics from disarmament initiatives to general diplomacy topics. Today with us, we have James Luke, a product assistant at Scrap Weapons. So, James, tell us a little about yourself, what you've been involved in, and what you've been doing since your recent master's has come to an end. So, hello, James. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. No, pleasure. Um, it's good. It's, um, as I said before this, it's, it's been a while since I've uh, had a chance to not only chat with people from Scrap, but do one of these. And you've been quite busy by the sounds of it. So I'm glad to have <laughs> you have you here. But yeah, no, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it's been great. So for the past year, I've been a project assistant at Scrap Weapons. I've mainly been focusing on the military balance um, project. And yeah, I've I think I've seen my role at Scrap as mainly focusing on building an evidence base for the need for an SSOD and which is a which stands for a special session on disarmament and um, which is kind of the main task of scrap and um yeah kind of building evidence base for why there needs to be a special session on disarmament at the UN General Assembly um based on what's going on uh, along the Taiwan Strait and um by looking at the military balance there hmm. Okay. Okay. And you were also recently in Hiroshima, right? For the G7 Youth Summit. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, um, it was a summit organized by the international campaign against nuclear weapons or for like mm. abolishing nuclear weapons. I forgot what the uh, acronym of ICANN stood for, but. Oh, um, right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and yeah, they, they got together like young people from G7 countries and beyond to uh, kind of talk about, uh, yeah, right before the G7 summit there. And um, we got to meet with uh, people from um, atomic bomb survivors and mm -hmm. also um, got to get together and reproduce the youth statement and um, submit it to the G7 leaders on the need for, uh, I guess, nuclear abolition. Mm, okay, interesting. Because there was actually the um, Korean Peninsula Peace Summit uh, where there's some talk on this topic as well recently last week. Oh, okay. um, so I guess it kind of ties in uh, to the G7 News Summit as well. There's some interchanging um, topics there. But um, let's let's start there because I think the G7 News Summit is quite aligned with kind of what a lot of the people who get into scrap are interested in are aligned with because um, it is a youth summit at the end of the day. And a lot of guys who help out at scrap are youths, so to speak, or you know people who are doing their masters or um, PhDs with SOAS or outside of SOAS. So can you tell us a little bit about your time in Hiroshima? What was kind of the the layout of the summit? What did people? What were the main events? Did you kind of see anything that you particularly resonated with? And uh, yeah, who did you meet? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. For me, I, I also I wasn't I was pretty fairly new to the disarmament field before I came to SOAS and before I joined on as a project assistant at Scrap. And um, I think Hiroshima for me was one of the first times I got to meet other young people active in this space. And it was, for me, it was quite inspiring to see and hear and also meet with people who were um, like young people, just like myself, who were active in this space and kind of know that there is actually movement and, and that's kind of, it's possible. And like kind of one of the, one of the, um, I think for me, what was most, yeah. And I guess the layout of the, the summit was kind of, um, was going to uh, the Hiroshima Peace Memorial, um, seeing, and the museum there was 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 fairly impactful, and um, just hearing hearing the stories and of 
nuclear bomb survivors because this is kind of the last generation that would actually get to meet in person and get to like, hear the horrors of what happened in person. And um, yeah, it was quite powerful. And, and yeah, also hear young people and especially young people from the Pacific Islands um, who have been um, subject to nuclear testing and um, by a lot of Western nations. And, um, and for me, kind of being in the room, interacting and seeing young people from the Pacific talk with um, Hibakusha, which are Japanese um, nuclear bomb survivors, was quite kind of impactful because both, you know, they might be two generations apart, but they're both subject to nuclear tests and, oh, yeah, um, and, and, and the effects of the atomic weapons. And, um, and yeah, and, and, and I think it's like, we don't realize this, perhaps, you know, at SOAS and we're a bit more detached from the reality of what happens in, in the Pacific or, or, or in, in Japan and um, being able to be there and kind of um, realize that, yeah, that there is, that these are the people who are affected and there, there's, there's a reason why people are, are um, advocating for disarmament and for um, nuclear abolition. And, um, mm. Yeah. Mm. and I imagine, well, as you said, it, it's still, you know, quite pertinent in people's minds, especially people who live in North Japan. So I believe it was only in like 2020 or 2019 when there was a viral video for the sirens going off in Hokkaido because North Korean missile testing got a little bit too close, right? Mm. Um, and for one of the only countries that, well, the only country really that's, other countries have had testing done on them, of course, but the only country that's had two missiles dropped on them like that. And for people to still be a generation that's still alive and can talk about it, you know, it, it definitely probably resonates the panic that exists with people living closer to North Korea, but still in Japan when they mm. hear these sirens going off. But I imagine that was a, a fairly well, unbelievable experience. And as you said, an experience that's limited to time because it's not going to, you know, having that direct voice of history isn't going to be around mm. for much longer. And I suppose why the museum, that, that's why the museum there is so important. Um, I've been to that museum myself, actually. And yeah, mm -hmm. it was quite, it's quite, um, well, it's emotional. Say the list <laughs> when you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the memorial is uh, yeah, it's quite a, it's a powerful place. Yeah, yeah, and I guess How if I might also add, like, I, I someone I met there was also um, recently spoke at the UN, kind of um, presenting on the perspective from the Marshall Islands and someone of my age as well, and I think it was it was yeah, you know, just it was really. It was, it was it was good to know that it's possible that the young voices can be valued and can be elevated to to be put in and speak at the UN and um, kind of building that network and cohort of young people engaged in um, disarmament issues is I think very important and um, yeah and it was something that that, that summit um, allowed 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 me to experience and be part of hmm, absolutely and it and it brings up another question actually because this, I feel like recently within the state of the world. The topic around disarmament has certainly picked up. Um, if we're looking at Israel, Gaza, if we're looking at Ukraine, Russia, if we're looking at the Taiwanese Strait that we'll talk about a little bit later, um, North Korea's continued to do testing as well. And um, of course, having a younger generation involved in that is important. And from your time in Hiroshima, do you feel like there is actually a, a gaining movement of, of young interest in this topic? Or do you think it's still a bit of a struggle? To get people involved, 
I would say there there is. I think I think um, initially I was also skeptical, and um, since I didn't really come from this background or this area, um, but but there are actually a lot of funding opportunities um, and learning, especially learning opportunities for um, for for young people, students to get involved. Um, a lot of conferences, a lot of um, I think. There, there seems, for in my perspective, there seems to be a, a, a reckoning in the disarmament community, arms control community, community that um, there might have been some success back, you know, in the um, in the Cold War, and there there are a couple of treaties like the INF treaty that banned um, intermediate range missiles um, between the U.S. and the USSR, um, although that's been scrapped now. But um, there there was previous success in that, and then. Um, after the years, there hasn't really been much um, much success in disarmament, arms, arms control treaties, and I think now, now, now there's reckoning that there needs to be a younger generation, and um, and and there is kind of funding available for young people to to step up and and um, and join this movement since kind of the, the older the older kind of more previous um, arms control negotiations have kind of faltered and. It's it's not adapt to this kind of this world where there are there are multiple multiples of, um, of conflicts in Ukraine, Russia, as you said, uh, Gaza, and um, and yeah, and I mean Taiwan as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's I view it almost as as like a wave, and I'm not sure saying it should be like a wave, but it's a wave in a sense where. Um, we're talking about like the last special session, the first special session. It's been quite some time now, and that's why we're pushing for a fourth special session in disarmament. But a wave where it only interest only really picks up when we do get to this kind of large scale conflicts that are a little too close for home for the everyday person to kind mm. of bear with. Uh, and we certainly saw that with Ukraine and Russia at, at the beginning, and now with Israel and Gaza, particularly as because of how um, diverse European countries are. It's much closer to home for some people over others. And we see this wave of interest in disarmament. And I think that's reflective of today, where we are seeing more people push for these these peace summits. Uh, like at the Korean Peninsula Peace Summit recently, there was a big talk on disarmament there. Um, but it's it's more of how to keep people interested so that these initiatives stick around, which I think is the real difficulty um and scrap is an example of of an initiative that's trying to do that right it's been around for a while now um in a time of relative peace um but it's still going strong but um yeah it's interesting i don't know how to keep the interest going (laughs) i suppose that's a bigger question um but it's good to see that more people are getting into it definitely yeah um i think it's interesting that you bring up this perspective of keeping the interest going i think you know yeah you know i think as yeah i think there'll be more and more conflicts going on and it feels it feels like it's it's more and more personal that there's um voices from the global south um conflicts going on all, all, all like ongoing conflicts and um massive needs for for voices and and, and kind of have have as underrepresented voices be kind of represented at the higher levels and mm. um, be kind of invited into the discussion table and mm. into into how 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 they want to shape this um, and the yeah the world and, and yeah 
Yeah, I, I think it also echoes some of the criticism that we've seen um, with the United Nations and with um, governments in general is that they're incredibly reactive as well. And I think, mm. you know, and the UN is a prime example of this, uh, very reactive, um, not necessarily thinking ahead to be preventative. Um, and I think, you know, that's an, an important approach that needs to be taken. But, well, that's why we need more youth involved, I suppose. <laughs> Because you could generally a little bit better at being preventative <laughs> rather than reactive. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Okay, so another topic um, which you've recently written two articles on is um, the Taiwan Strait military balance, which is very, very interesting, particularly because we're talking about essentially China and the US. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that topic, that area, kind of dumb it down for us so we can all kind of understand um, what exactly were those papers about? Why is it so important to you? Why are you writing about it? Yeah, um, of course. Um, yeah, the um, so the, the two the two articles I wrote were um, products of kind of the military balance project, and um, the goal was to 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 complexify the the surrounding discourse on this um, this emerging threat of China, and and yeah, it involved. Going digging into the details of of, um, of the military balance and looking at more specifically at rocket stockpiles between the U.S. and China to to build a um, to build a picture of of what the military balance is like across uh, between the U.S. and China and also across the Taiwan Strait. And I think what what, what we found at Scrap was that while China's increasing in military spending and um, stockpile is is very very concerning and also very um, compared to Taiwan, it's very um, threatening to Taiwan. If you add in the U.S. and its allies, such as Japan, Australia, um, it paints a very different picture, and the the balance is actually much more in favor of the West than than to China. And um, and in the military balance project, the some of the articles we were publishing were focused on looking into the details of that and looking into um, the, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese most latest article looked into the Chinese side and looked into what the Chinese capabilities are near um, along the southern border and and what, what that can say to, about the, the current discourse on this threat of China. Okay, interesting. Very interesting. And, and why now is this such an important area to look into? I mean, we know there's kind of always growing discourse around Taiwan, particularly due to economical reasons. You know, China is one of the largest holder of rare rare earth materials. Taiwan um, produces a lot of chips. Am I right in saying that the U.S. doesn't want China to have dominance over rare earth materials and the manufacturing using those rare earth materials, or is it more of a point of China viewing a pathway to reunification? Why is this such an important? Area to be looking at and paying attention to right now. Yeah, um, I guess I'd actually refer back to what we we're talking about earlier about being um, preventative rather than reactive. Mm. And mm. yeah, and I'm, I, I grew up in Hong Kong, and I think for me this is something that's personal, and it's yeah, and and I think growing up in Hong Kong, I, I've been able to see both both the West and its it strengthens flaws and also kind of China and strengthens flaws and, and, and kind of, and, and there's this kind of almost kind of ticking time bomb and no one's not sure, no one's sure when 
when this would happen or if this would happen and across um across Taiwan and um increasing rhetoric by the Chinese side is very concerning and scary to everyone that's kind of living in that area and and yeah and, and I think the reason why now is important is because it's it's better to be preventative and look into look into ways for to to bring this kind of escalating tensions into a diplomatic route into conversation and dialogue opposed to increases in military spending to and posturing to show who's stronger and which would kind of eventually lead to you know the, the, the eventuality of increases in military spending is is, is conflict and, in my opinion and I think that's why it's it's important to research and provide evidence base for how this can be dialed down and controlled and scaled back into mm-hmm. diplomacy and yeah yeah and and I mean I guess the big and very difficult question is then do you believe that there is an avenue or pathway to scale down dial back and have positive diplomatic you know communications between the two nations that would avoid any kind of conflict. Uh, very big question. I know that <laughs> difficult yeah. question as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what do you? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely a, a long shot. Um, I think. Um, yeah, the, I, I don't really from from where I am from where I am right now. I think it's really hard to say definitively if um, one way or not or, or another. But I think it's worth a shot and it's worth worth a try. And I think as young people, we yeah, you know, we, we continue to 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 live in our local contexts for for, for 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 you know quite quite some time, and it's also kind of making sure that um, our future is is safe and secured and not um, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Do you do you think there's a more do you think there's certain pathways that will be more beneficial than others? I mean, when we're talking about pathways through diplomacy, of course, we've got you know sanctions or we've got treaties or we've got um, cultural diplomacy, cultural sharing, we've got economic agreements. You know, do you think there's a particular way forward that can slowly kind of get us to that point of more trusted dialogue between the two nations where they can kind of come away and, and have a bit more faith in each other that certain narratives will change about each other? Because I think if we look at the, both of them internally, domestically, there's often in the media this idea of hostile diplomacy, of, of being quite aggressive in, towards each other. Which you know historically has never really worked, and that that's a big hurdle to get over. Maybe it is uh, you know the idea of waiting for fresh minds to come in, but you know if if we were to try and pursue that now as a government you know as a government in the u s the u k whoever it may be, and China, do you think there's a particular avenue which is better to pursue than another one, or just one that's better to pursue in general yeah um well- I think I'll, I'll stick to scraps kind of um, <laughs> scraps work here. Mm. It's 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 one way. It's not it's not the only way, but I think it's it's one way of um, of, of advocating for the convening of a special session on disarmament. It's one way to bring parties into dialogue, and um, whether whether parties would kind of accept this this um, this piece is is still up in the air, and I think there can be. Yeah, I think it, it could be there can be avenues to, to for, for for parties to be more acceptable and less acceptable to um, disarmament. And I think from the Chinese perspective, um, any disarmament agreement is is seen as limiting their China China's rise. And 
Um, that's that's of course um, a yeah, and and whereas whereas in the U.S. it's kind of like maintaining the status quo, and 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 there is kind of a conflict of kind of seemingly conflict of interest over there that will have to be addressed in order to in order for any 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 um, successful disarmament or arms control treaties to 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 flourish. I think. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. But Scrap is proposing. Well, we'll take as you said, we'll take Scrap an example as a disarmament treaty. Whereas proposing a percentage-based reduction in arms right over X amount of years with verification, you know, where you know this kind of proposal is a very balancing proposal because people are starting mm-hmm. off at different numbers, but will ultimately end up with the same number. Yeah, one or two or whatever it may be. Ideally, none. But that's a whole other discussion about you know. Mm-hmm. If that is actually the best come outcome, none or or one or two, where if you do have the stockpile of arms and it's very very limited amount, there's still enough to destroy a city. I mean, mm, you know, mm, yeah, completely. Especially now, considering the strides forwards this kind of technology has taken, you're still maintaining the status quo by having this insane amount of power behind your back to kind of strongman your way at a negotiation table, which I think a lot of countries that are certainly coming into those kind of nuclear capabilities use them or, or you know try to justify the use for north korea is a prime example of this mm. um i'm not sure about china if that's you know if that's what how they describe their nuclear weapons program but you'd think that a percentage based reduction arms would be more appealing to a nation like china where they are starting with less a smaller stockpile than the states of russia for example and it's almost like it does put them on an equal playing field if if there was acceptance of this kind of percentage-based reduction in arms treaty, because they would meet eventually. So mm. do you do you think that China would be more willing to adopt some kind of treaty like that? Or do you think it's going to be America that's going to push for it first? Or can we not really say in this instance? I mean, I think of course it's 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 hard to say right now, but I think at the moment, I think the U.S. has has the has the upper hand in terms of negotiating because, of course, the balance of power favors the U.S. more and the, and the West more. Um, I think, from from my perspective, uh, you know, it might it might be completely misguided. Or, um, I think China would try to at least increase its stockpile. It's 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 I guess it's it's role in the world and its place in the world before it feels comfortable in ter- to to um. To negotiate some any, anything like that, mm. and and yeah, and, and also I think, but I think I think sometimes it's hard talking about U.S. and China or, or the West and China, and we tend to forget that that this that this, this this issue is also very much a local issue for Taiwan, and 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 also between a relation between Taiwan and and, and Beijing, you know, Taipei and Beijing, uh, and, and and yeah, I think like it's it's also important to to take into account. Um, how Taiwan Taiwan's uh, position, their their voice, and kind of also have 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 Taiwanese perspectives in 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 a discussion in terms of U.S. and China. If the flashpoint is seen to be mm-hmm. starting in, in, on the Taiwan Strait, if not, then that that can be something else. And and what is that position? And what is that voice? Would you say in Taiwan then? I mean, I'm not Taiwanese, but true. I... <laughs> <laughs> sure. um, yeah, no, I am. Um, yeah, I think I think they're they're like I think calls calls by by, by China for um for 
for reunification has been kind of increasing a lot in the past couple of years. And it's very alarming um, for, for Taiwan. And, and yeah, and, and, and I think there's great causes to be alarmed and, some, and the kind of waiting in terms of um, for, for China to feel safe in terms of its, its, um, its position in the global, in, in the world might might you know might be too late for for um for, for taiwan so i think if you if you're asking why is this important right now i think it, it is very important right now mm. um to to be preventative and instead of reactive at the, mm. at the end of the day absolutely i mean two i mean from what i've read i i feel i believe that a lot of people in taiwan just want a maintenance of their current status quo right mm. not to be dragged into any conflict like you said it would be the flashpoint it would be the epicenter of any conflict you know we've seen lots of leaked documentation on invasion plans and defense plans and heightened security in the region as well but i suppose as well if i you know as as you said i'm not from taiwan and i'm not from taiwan either but if i was taiwanese i suppose the idea it's the west versus china but who's to say if it is the west versus china because who's to know if the states would want to get involved in that regard and you know exaggerate and not exaggerate but cause the conflict to grow massively right it would yeah. be a massive yeah. conflict if there was any involvement and as you pointed out there's australia japan south korea for example where there's unconfirmed but suspected storage of warheads american warheads mm-hmm. you know japan's over the last 10 years, massively increased its spending on its self-defense force, which is 250,000 people strong. But if it was to become a regional flashpoint, how involved would those nations want to be? Yeah. And and I think it's it's definitely important to consider that as in if, is it really beneficial for for the people of Taiwan if regional regional kind of powers like Japan or Australia or even the US take that into a... um, into a much larger conflict that, um, and, and what would that actually benefit the people of Taiwan? And I think that's also a really a big question to, mm. to, to keep in mind. And it might be too, too soon to kind of, um, to, 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 to say for sure, for sure right now. No, no, that's a very good question. Indeed. Would it benefit the people of Taiwan if there was further involvement from outside forces or outside parties? Because the greater the involvement, the more conflict the area is going to see, and it's just going to reduce the nation further if the conflict was to go on for, let's say, as long as we've seen the Ukraine-Russia battle uh, conflict. Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. There's a lot to think about. It's it's a bit of a contrarian viewpoint, I think, mm. in, in terms of the discourse in the West, and, and and of course, because I think that like seeing that is also suggesting that yeah, you know, like a, a lack of yeah, yeah, um, kind of. Taiwanese um, willpower to and and when and yeah, I think that's it's, it's worthwhile to consider, but I don't think it's like kind of anything that's mm. for, for certain at the moment. No, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. But you mentioned before this, um, you said you grew up in Hong Kong, and it's yeah. kind of a, a personal topic for you. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, um, in in. In terms of how it relates to disarmament and arms control, and um, yeah, I think I think for me, yeah, I think the growing up in Hong Kong, I've, I've been able to, to 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 see kind of 
both both perspectives of, of, of China and, and the West. And in some senses, it's it helps it helps when when like doing a project that like the military balance project at Scrap, I think, because I think my perspective isn't that um, isn't that. Um, but I, I try not to have a really too one sided perspective and right. um, try try kind of when you talk about the military balance, really kind of portray portray Chinese side, the West, and and kind of objectively and analytically, and also kind of point out the flaws and and also the strengths of, of both sides. And I think that's kind of how how I situate myself and and also kind of want wanting to de-escalate because I think I don't think that's um that's beneficial for 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 um for, for yeah for, for for everyone involved. Mm, mm, yeah. I feel I mean this may be a similar to a question I asked earlier, but you know, do you see that that do you think that there's a side that's pushing more for any form of de-escalation, any kind of diplomatic conflict or diplomatic way than another side? I mean, it's kind of, it might be sound like a, a loaded question almost, and it's not, it's general, genuine, genuine curiosity. Yeah, is there, is there a side that is seeking de-escalation more than the other in any kind of regard? Mm. You know, I, I, I think I, I genuinely feel that both everyone's seeking to escalate. I don't think anyone's <laughs> seeking to de-escalate like, more than the other. Mm. Um, I mean, I mean, yeah, I think China's China's is like is is on the rise, and of course, like arms control isn't isn't really on isn't like it goes counter against that. And in, in the U.S. and in the West, it's kind of the like, trying to keep maintain their position and. Um, in the world order, and, and and which is done by proliferation, and 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 there hasn't really been serious attempts, I think, at at um, arms control or, or de-escalation, uh, and, and and yeah, and 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 yeah, I think that can be seen with recent sales of Tomahawk and Jasmine missiles to to Australia, to Japan, to to, to from the U.S. and that that doesn't seem really to seem like um, de-escalation mm-hmm. to to me, so. Yeah, it right. seems like everyone's escalating, and as a young person in, in the middle of it, I'm I'm just kind of uh, it, it, it's hard to see to, to to see avenues forward. I think that, that yeah, yeah, I think one of the things I struggle for, with from my perspective is is when looking at the situation. It's hard as, as a west as a westerner who you know I've spent some time living in the east and working in the east, but someone who's predominantly grown up in the west and consumes western media. And just by the fact that it's in English, it's, it's predominantly Western media, and I can't speak Chinese, so you know it's it's much more difficult. It's differentiating between what's propaganda and what's not propaganda online when it comes to this kind of topic, because you know my my whole master's degree was was a focus on on East Asia. I'm particularly interested in the Korean Peninsula, so much of my writing is focused around the Korean Peninsula and some um, cultural diplomacy between Japan and Korea, but. With regards to China, it's not really my strong suit, apart from when it comes to uh, environmental issues. But um, we see, I see a lot of news now about China's economic situation and its failing economic situation, and how increased spending on their military will lead to greater, you know, economic collapse because it's uh, it's a balancing act, right? But differentiating between what is propaganda and what's not, I find particularly hard. And yeah, it's, I mean, as you said with your two papers, you, you wrote two papers, one specifically from a Chinese perspective and one from a Western perspective, right? 
And I think that's kind of what's needed overall. And we've seen a general lack of in a lot of research, which is trying mm. to have a more balanced approach. So I, I think that's really, really, really good. Yeah. And, and I guess I think I'd also like to add in terms of kind of how like conducting research uh, on, on, um, on disarmament and arms control. I think it's, um, there's actually a lot of information out there and, um, or be that on social media or published journals and articles. And I think kind of, we talked previously about making like, how, how can like, how can this be a continued approach to disarmament and, and not just something that's kind of short lived. And yeah, and I, th I think it would be for me, I'd, I'd be really interested in sharing kind of part of my research methodology and mm -hmm. um, some of kind of how, how I've conducted the research just so that kind of that, that information gets shared and, have provided perspective beyond those the, the, the articles that that kind of I haven't been able to talk about and this podcast I think would be a really fun option to do so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. I think yeah, you're right. I, I, it depends. I think it depends on the region. So, for example, um, disarmament's a large topic overall, right? And there's lots of different mm -hmm. areas where, which you can deep dive in and research in. Um, for example, some people I know in our organization are looking at certain disarmament initiatives that came out of the Middle East, uh, and my area is more the Korean for example but when you tackle your papers in the Taiwanese straight military balance how do you kind of dive into that how do you tackle that yeah um i think uh one really great resource um is the federation of american scientists and they they produce this um bulletin of atomic scientists report and this kind of the inspiration for for my second piece was was very much taken from um the chinese nuclear weapons 2023 report and the um Researchers there had compiled this, this document with um, this massive spreadsheet of a list of Chinese rocket um, missile bases and you know, what type of weapons are stored there, and down to kind of screenshots from satellite imagery to, um, to exact coordinates and what end of the, the base and what type of um, kind of um, weapons are there, and 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 I think that was actually that was kind of the start of of. Of, of my inquiry into into discovering more, more about the Chinese side, and there's a lot of information out there on the open source materials, and the young students and academics and advocacy groups can can tap into, and and yeah, and I think my uh, for me it was um, specifically related to the military balance. I, I I learned that it's it's not really the the missile type or kind of the the range or the coordinate that's that's important for for our our discussion. It's it's the stockpile and. And um, and when that required a bit more digging, and which was actually much harder to find than I thought, and required me to look into kind of the U.S. Department of Defense, and they published this this, this article on I think they, on the Chinese military power report, and they published that every single year. And we scroll down to the appendix; it shows kind of um, the certain the class and, and and the quantity of missiles, and 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 over there I managed to find that they were around the. Chinese rocket forces around 1,600 missiles in total, mm. whereas um, the U.S. in terms of just kind of Tomahawk missiles is like 4,000 already, and um, including JASM, that's 9,000. And there is a really, really big stockpile gap. And um, and part of our, our our my my work at Scrap was to kind of point that out that there is a stockpile gap. And and when when we consume information, I think. I, I do spend most of my time in in, in, in the UK now, uh, and, and when, or, or in the US, and and we consume information on this rising threat of China, and 
and and oh, China has like the the fastest growing navy or the most advanced uh, the kind of um, this this new type of missile is, is it goes beyond U.S. capabilities. I think it's also important, and and these news sites uh, often talk about the type of missile or you know, the type of weaponry and um, what its capabilities, but it doesn't really talk about the stockpile and actual numbers of how many what the quantity is. And by looking into the quantity, I think it can it tease out a larger kind of a larger, a broader picture of, of, of the U.S. kind of stockpile, just stockpile of two, two weapon systems outnumbering the entire Chinese rocket forces stockpile to up to by six times. Mm. And, and then that's a really kind of um, big number to, to consider when, when we, when, and, and to contextualize how the West is increasing its weapon sales or increasing its, its spending on the military when, when in fact, kind of, there, there is actually a, a really, really big stockpile gap already. Mm. I'm, I, I guess, I'm, I'm quite surprised. Well, I don't know. I, I'd assume that the stockpile, the stock, the numbers you get for the stockpile gap, they're, they're estimates, or are they actual digits? Because I'd be surprised if the military complex, the United States military, would would release that sort of information for public consumption, and likewise with with China, or or do they actually release the exact details about their stockpile use? Well, I think. For the U, well, yeah, I think um, China, yeah, for, for for the Chinese side, I think a lot of the research has been done by the U.S. DoD um, Department of Defense, and and they published that, or even the Federation of American Scientists, which are an independent kind of um, body of, of of people working in the the disarmament sphere, mm. and, um, and 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 so yeah, so, so so they released those figures, and that's also available for for, for the U.S. and I think Dan recently, uh, Dan Plesh, kind of the recently wrote an article on 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 kind of u.s missile um stockpiles and, and that's kind of where the numbers for the u.s side came from so so there is a and that so there is actually a lot of information that's open for for young researchers and academics to to, to look into and i think that's also something that's that, that was surprising for me as someone who is new to the disarmament sphere and if there are opportunities and i think yeah there are there are opportunities to if you know where to where to look and how to look and yeah, mm, 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 mm. I feel like there's kind of two pathways in which you can get involved into disarmament um, through NGOs like Scrap or, or whatever your local disarmament group may be, and, and I think one of them is you're interested in the research first, and then you look for a group to get involved with, or with my case, uh, you get sucked into a group, and then you <laughs> start to start to research as you learn more. Um, and I think probably the more common way well, i don't know to be honest because i i may be an exception to the rule the more common way is is to start researching first and my when i started researching the sermon and get involved in the sermon i found very quickly that i had to pick a particular area otherwise it was too overwhelming mm-hmm. for me and to this day if i go to a talk or if i go to um a lecture if i have a conversation with someone you know and then they start they're talking about a, an area that is within disarmament but i'm i don't necessarily read about I, I get lost. I, I don't understand <laughs> a lot of what's being said. So for people who are interested in some and, and starting to research about it um, and potentially join a cause, if you were to hand out some advice as someone who's been involved for just over a year now, where would be a good place to kind of start educating yourself or researching or looking into to prepare yourself for any kind of disarmament talk or lecture or getting involved with an NGO? Yeah, yeah. I um, think... Yeah, I think of course there's the uh, the Youth for Disarmament uh, 
website that that they, they do like a newsletter with opportunities, upcoming opportunities um, by that the UN from, from the UN that 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 goes that goes to your email, and that's a really great way to get started to to understand to even just to kind of tune into um, events like UN events, be that online or in person, and that's a great way to get started in, in the advocacy side. And I think for me, my path was also kind of getting sucked into scrap weapons and and also kind of um, into the research part of it. And uh, that that's personally my interest in in in, in conducting research. And um, and I think it. I think it is a bit harder. I think starting with with an institutional background it also makes it much easier, of course. But I think that's also kind of um, a valuable perspective in in terms of I think the youth um, youth youth disarmament movement. I think it's there's always the campaigning side, uh, but but there's also the research side that kind of backs that up and provides the data and evidence for why there why there why there should be this um, SSOD or why there should be why there should be arms control and and um and and yeah that's kind of been my my entryway into that and yeah i think i think um yeah i think looking into details and and and, um, and being and, and continue doing research is, is a great way to build the evidence kind of a, a um the data for that and for 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 campaigning and advocacy work mm, mm, mm. yeah absolutely and as you said, mentioned of ICANN, for example, and, and Scrap, and, and there's plenty of, uh, even my locally in Southeast London, there's a local disarmament activist group down here as well. And, and they are more available and around than people might imagine. Mm. And there are definitely ways to get involved. And I think particularly my interest is in the research as well, you know, researching and, and writing about it and, and looking up numbers and deep diving like you have done is fantastic and, and definitely helps actual on the ground advocacy groups um so they can back up what they're what they're saying and going out there yeah very interesting okay so we've, we've talked a little bit about, uh, a little bit about taiwan um we've talked a little bit about hiroshima is there any other topic that you're kind of keen to, to discuss while we're here um no no i think um i think it was, it was great being able to kind of provide um yeah that that this podcast and avenue to share my experience at Scrap this past year, and um, also kind of more of like a kind of a personal conversation that's not really in written format. And, mm. um, so yeah, I really enjoyed this podcast, this conversation. Um, before we finish, where can people find your work? Because I know you've published some work, um, like on the Scrap website, for example. So where can people find anything you're writing about, or you know, if they're interested in what you're Writing up specifically, where can they find some information on that as well? Yeah, um, so far it's um, Scrap Opinion page, and um, hopefully there will be more there. And also, um, I'm yet to, and hopefully I might, you know, start something something for myself. But that is up and coming. And um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, very cool, very cool. I mean, yeah, starting something for yourself would be would be awesome. Would be right. Would be definitely worth it. I think I've been thinking about doing the same as well, or even just a website where I can put everything yeah. I write in one place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think something like that. Yes, yeah. yeah, that'd be fantastic. Well, you know, potentially down the line, then we can yes. uh, have another conversation <laughs> about that, and uh, yeah, get into the, the nitty gritty of that. But thank you very much, James. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope we can do this again in the future. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Ben.